Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. I'm Ronan Kavanagh, editor of World Energy Opinion at Energy Intelligence. Today, we're going to be focusing on the impacts of the war in Ukraine on Europe's energy policy. And to help us examine those, I'm delighted to be joined by Energy Intelligence Senior Reporter, Philippe Bruce, Jaime Concha, Deputy Editor of World Gas Intelligence, and Phil Chafee, our London Bureau Chief and Deputy Editor of Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Thanks for joining us, guys. Now, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called this moment a change of an era in Europe's history. How seismic is this for energy, Philippe? Hi. Uh, I think we can call it a, a tectonic change. Uh, it, it has really exposed vulnerabilities that actually have always been obvious uh, in terms of uh, Europe energy supply, but have been somehow neglected in the past few decades. And now it's forcing Europe to address its dependence on Russian Russian energy imports. And I would like also to its dependence on energy imports in general. And I would even add, uh, and that follows also the COVID crisis, that it's forcing Europe to question its reliance on market mechanisms, uh, which might also be a big uh, a big issue in the in the future. Uh, it's adding a strong focus on energy security, on diversification, uh, uh, and it's adding that to the existing climate priorities. It's adding to those cl- uh, priorities, but it's not displacing them. I, I would even say it's re- reinforcing them. In the near term, Europe will focus on replacing gas with gas, uh, Russian gas uh, imports with LNG. It will also use its existing coal assets, but longer term, I think the path is still firmly low carbon with renewables and perhaps and possibly a touch of nuclear. Now, looking at this issue of replacing Russian gas imports, it's not like Europe's energy import vulnerability has been a secret. You know, it's long talked about diversifying energy supplies, hasn't it, Jaime? Hi, Ronan. Uh, yes, that that's true. And there has been diversification in the sense that there are more countries supplying Europe through LNG. But what what is uh, quite important is that the European Commission didn't address the issue of Russian dependency, Russian import dependency, uh, as a as a specific matter. It didn't address it head on, mainly due to the fact that in a liberalized market the cheapest source of gas wins out. Uh, in, in, in the intervening years since the European Commission uh, was seeking to diversify its sources of imports, LNG capacity was built out uh, in accordance to this diversification mandate, but the market continued to favor cheap Russian pipeline gas. Uh, of course, this all changed due to the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. And now energy security is the number one priority in the continent. And, you know, this it took all of this to shake up the complacency and has given a boost to EU energy policy. So what does this look like in, in, in practice, you know, immediately, Jaime? Well, the European Commission announced uh, its plans to reduce Russian gas import dependency yesterday, where it has said that it can reduce some two-thirds of Russian gas imports this year alone. Uh, It it says that it can do this right now, 
by relying on more non-Russian LNG and gas and pipe gas imports uh, through the production of more renewable gases, mainly biomethane and renewable hydrogen. And of course, it would also rely on uh, well, the expansion of renewable power generation this year and energy uh, efficiency measures. But this all goes back to the question of how achievable this all is because the global LNG market remains extremely tight for supplies and on the pipe gas front, there is not much that non-Russian suppliers can offer Europe at the moment. Uh, high prices attract LNG cargoes in the global market until it doesn't, which means that this could mean a greater reliance on existing coal and uh, on existing coal and nuclear capacities in Europe. Thank you. And Europe's not losing its sight, of course, of the energy transition, is it, Philippe? No, definitely not. And I, I, I would even say, unfortunately, that uh, the Ukraine war might be the, the best news ever for climate action. Uh, it's the, actually, it's the best news since the COVID crisis, which is, uh, which is still ongoing. Uh, so it's two in a row. Uh, and I think the combination of these two crises will, again, unfortunately, is, is quite likely that it, to be effective in terms of climate action and energy transition. Uh, in the short and medium term, as I said, there will certainly be, and as Jaime said, there will certainly be more uh, coal-based electricity in Europe, more energy imports. Uh, but that's only we 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 need to remember that's only to substitute Russian imports. So e- even short term, the bottom line of, of all, all these all these things is less fossil fuels, even if it involves a bit more emissions. Because if we use more coal, uh, it might increase a little bit the amount of emissions, but the amount of fossil fuels will definitely uh, definitely decrease uh, now. Uh, and Europe still wants to transition away from, from fossil fuels in the in the long term and reach carbon neutrality or net zero as, as soon as possible. And one interesting twist we're seeing is countries seem to be taking a more tolerant attitude towards nuclear as a low carbon option. Now, you've been waiting patiently there, Phil, as nuclear has. What are you seeing on this front? It's sort of mixed on this front. Uh, Germany did have this brief flirtation last week with potentially keeping open its final three reactors beyond their current closure date uh, of the end of this year. And yesterday, um, the ministries reviewing that seemed to sort of poo-poo it, um, saying that uh, it would only make a very limited contribution at very high economic, constitutional, and security costs. Um it's no surprise Germany is very, very anti-nuclear. Uh, separately, the Belgian government, which had just in December seemed to cohere around, ag- agree on a policy of phasing out their nuclear fleet by the end of 2025, they are now flirting with keeping or pushing that date back. And that seems a bit more likely. And then beyond those countries that were already committed to nuclear phase-outs, uh, other countries that have long relied on nuclear power, you're seeing um, you're seeing some life extensions of reactors in places like Finland, and then you're you're seeing uh, potentially new energy to longstanding plans to build out 
um, a whole bunch of new nuclear capacity um, in places like France, but also um, the Netherlands, also a bunch of Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, several other countries. So some encouraging signs there. Now, coal is another incumbent that's seeing an uplift. Is this any more than temporary, Jaime? Well, the expectation is that there will be no new coal plants built in Europe. And this is mainly because European climate targets uh, rule out any new unabated coal plants. Uh, but uh, high, ga- uh, high gas prices and the, the, the tight supply situation for, for natural gas means that more profitable coal, that uh, coal burn is more profitable for, for European energy producers, which means that it's much more interesting for them to revive existing coal plants. So the, the likelihood that new coal plants will be built is, is, is still low, but this, this uh, market situation means that uh, existing coal plants could be revived. Germany, for example, increased coal burn last year uh, in, the, in the high price environment and France also opted to burn more coal due to uh, unplanned outages in its, nuclear, uh, in its nuclear power fleet. Italy is also considering reopening some of its shuttered coal plants. But it, take the, the, the German government's plans to exit coal Right now, it's legally required to exit coal by 2038. uh, And it was expected that this year, the government would confirm a new exit date of 2030. Uh, But the current situation uh, changes all of that. What is likely is that the government will have to review its coal exit uh, target year by year to see whether this 2030 goal which, which, as I said before, is not legally mandated at the moment, uh, whether this 2030 goal is achievable. And the reason why it needs to be reviewed year by year is because this all depends on the growth of, of German renewable power capacity, which depends on a whole other set of variables. And what about LNG? It would seem an obvious contender to kind of replace Russian pipe gas. Jaime? Yes, you're right. Uh, and the European Commission is betting on LNG quite a lot, uh, as, I, as I said earlier. However, LNG comes with its own set of problems. Uh, I, I already mentioned that the global LNG market is extremely tight, uh, it, which means that there are there is no significant amount of new supply projects until after the middle of, of the decade, after 2025. However, European countries want and need to expand LNG import capacity. Germany is planning at least three LNG terminals, where at least two of those, uh, one one called Brunsbüttel, uh, or it's located in Brunsbüttel, and another one in Wilhelmshaven, uh, those two are going to be government supported, or at least that's what Berlin has indicated. And the details of how that's going to happen are still up in the air. Both of these projects. Uh, have struggled to reach final investment decisions due to the uncertainty of uh, of gas's role in the energy transition. Uh, and of course, with the caveat that LNG imports in these new projects will need to be balanced by future imports of green gases like ammonia and hydrogen, 
and this is all incorporated in the project details of 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 the the German projects that I said before. Uh, and and I mean more more import capacity can also be achieved in the rest of Europe, and new floating LNG terminals can also be planned to be brought in. But as you were saying earlier, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve Europe's energy security problems. Yes, that's for sure. Uh, there's 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 many problems with all of this. The one of the problems. Uh, well, I mentioned that the issue of tight of tight supplies in the global market and the uh, the current uh, global gas market is also indicating that these high prices that we're seeing today are going to extend further into uh, into uh, next year, which again makes gas uh, extremely expensive to procure LNG in particular, which is more expensive than piped gas. But another thing to take into consideration is that LNG, uh, sorry, uh, building these new LNG terminals, uh, for example, the German ones, it takes time. The German uh, LNG terminals will take at least two years to, to develop, if not more. So uh, it, is, it is currently not a, not a short-term solution for Germany in itself. For the rest of Europe, well, it's another question because it, it relies on on many other factors. It relies on infrastructure. It relies on uh, bottlenecks, and even if the uh, it, it relies on, as I said before, global supply of LNG. And even if a lot of LNG can be brought into Europe uh, uh, during times of high demand or during times of emergencies, for example, if Russian gas supplies are cut, uh, there are other issues such as bottlenecks, problems with shipping that could limit the effectiveness of LNG. So th these are all things to consider when talking about LNG. And, and with no readily alternative to Russian gas for Europe, it's perhaps not surprising then that Europe is eyeing a faster transition, is it, Philippe? No, it's not surprising. You, you have the EU Fit for 55 policy package, which was announced before the war, uh, it's now being finalized with negotiations underway between the European Commission, the Parliament and the member states. And what's interesting is that in the normal course of events, uh, proposals from the Commission tend to be watered down in the process. But perhaps this time it won't be the case. Uh, indeed, the president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, said this week that it's our switch to renewables and hydrogen that will make us truly independent. And yesterday, uh, the Commission announced its new plan, uh, the uh, Repower EU plan, uh, which includes uh, LNG, uh, not surprisingly, but it's mostly about wind and solar, including uh, rooftop solar panels for individuals and, uh, and commercial companies. It includes electric heat pumps, uh, industry electrification, renewable hydrogen, uh, biogas, also biomethane. And, and last but not least, and it's quite important, especially if you, if you look at previous crises like in the, the 1970s, energy savings. You can do a lot uh, with just not consuming energy or consuming less energy. Uh, the full implementation of the Fit for 55 proposals would reduce uh, fossil gas consumption by 30% by 2030. 
uh, by 2030, which is equivalent to 100 billion cubic meters. And the commission said yesterday that with the new measures in this uh, Repower EU plan, uh, the reduction could grow from 100 billion tons to 155 billion uh, cubic meters, sorry, billion cubic meters, which is more or less equivalent to the volume imported from Russia last year. Uh, and the commission also quite interestingly said that two thirds of that reduction can be achieved within a year. So between now and next winter, which is which is quite ambitious, but quite feasible probably. Absolutely, very ambitious. Now, looking back to, back to gas again, Jaime, what what has the EU outlined in, in the Repower EU pa- policy package for, for this? Yes, uh, so uh, in the, the European Commission, uh, and also which has also, also taken advice from, from the International Energy Agency, has given some, some, some recommendations as to, as to what to do about, about gas supplies. Uh, they're thinking of increasing minimum storage filling requirements uh, across Europe. Uh, for example, they ex- in order to prepare for 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 the next winter period, which which as you as as, as everybody knows is is a, a period of high demand for not only for electricity production but also for heating, which which are both sectors that that are important for gas consumption. Uh, the European Commission has said that uh, has proposed that the European Union should, uh, uh, or the member states in the European Union should have gas storage filled by 90% uh, by October the 1st, which is the start of the winter season for for, for the gas market. Uh, this is, uh, at least in the short term for this year, is quite an ask because current um, storage is, is at around 30%. But by by um, let's say forcing the market to uh, to fill storage, it means that uh, there will be no supply outages or supply deficits uh, in the high demand periods. Of course, there's also other supply issues uh, that can be addressed, as as we said before. Uh, the European Commission wants more 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 LNG imports, therefore more more LNG ter- import terminals in Germany. Uh, can be done, can be can be constructed. However, of course, as I said before, it depends on how fast this can be done, and maybe this is not a short-term solution. And one of the important things that is all already happening uh, is for for European buyers to not renew expiring Russian supply contracts. Uh, this kind of uh, as a as a as a as a measure or as a response of the Ukrainian, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian invasion, uh, a lot of com- companies have done it by themselves without being prodded by, by the European Commission. Uh, but what is important to know about this is that not all supply contracts from Russia expire this year. They expire maybe in a couple of years' time, five years, ten years. There's a lot of different array, array of, of contract durations, so this could not be a uh, a, uh, a short-term solution. I mean, another thing that the European Commission didn't say, and which might not be climate-friendly, is that the European, uh, co- the, the European Commission or the European uh, market as a whole could look at increasing domestic gas production, uh, looking at 
the North Sea in the UK, looking at the Norwegian continental shelf, maybe potentially increasing uh, production in the Groningen field in the Netherlands, reconsidering shale, um, which this last one is a controversial one, so I'm not sure that it can be done uh, due to quite strong public opposition. There are things that can be done, but the, the supply aspect of it is quite tricky. So lots, lots to watch out for there. Now, I wanted to come back to nuclear finally. Phil, you mentioned earlier France was looking at new bills. I mean, is that really feasible? And are you seeing similar elsewhere? Yeah, so before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, President Macron unveiled this very ambitious policy for six to 14 new reactors in France, on top of the one that's been under construction for well over a decade in Normandy. Um, France, therefore, joins uh, the UK, Poland, Finland, uh, Czech Republic, Romania, a bunch of companies that envision new nuclear as as a key pillar of their energy transitions. Uh, it's unclear whether that's feasible. Um, I think the geopolitics have shifted in a way that both Russian and Chinese supply of reactors are probably off the table across the, across the continent. And that in turn means that the cheap financing that was coming from those potential reactor supplies is not there. Uh, so the question then, is it feasible that the French, uh, with the Americans and potentially the South Koreans could supply uh, reactors on the scale that all of these countries are talking about? Uh, it's a mixed performance record on that front so far in the new builds that have taken place over the past uh, past decade or two. Uh, but the invasion of of uh, Ukraine and the sort of new prominence of energy security may at least unlock some more government financing if if all of those governments really think that this is key to their uh, energy futures. Very interesting. Thank you, Phil, for sharing those insights with us. And thanks to Philippe and Jaime for joining us today. That's just about all we have time for as well. So I'd like to finally thank our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tune in again for our next Energy Transition podcast. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com.